Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm introducing a recording of an event on Israel-Palestine organized by members of the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The event took place on May 19th and was co-sponsored by the e-zine Jadalia as well as the New Books Network. You can read the text of the poster in the podcast blog. Here's the recording. Welcome. Then thanks for joining us for this teach-in roundtable on Sheikh Jarrah and the events associated with it these days. Uh, my name is Sarah Shields. I'm a professor in the history department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Watching the tragic events that are occurring in East Jerusalem and Gaza, we felt it was important to organize an event that tried to contextualize what is happening through a historical scholarly perspective. As the poster for this panel states, when it comes to Palestine, there's a sharp disconnect between the ways academics specializing in the contemporary Middle East frame the dispute and the discussions by journalists and mainstream media outlets. Our aim for this panel is for it to provide a scholarly perspective to pragmatic concerns that journalists and readers should understand and consider when reporting on or reading about the current situation in Palestine today. So before I introduce the panelists, and we're delighted that they were willing and able to join us at very short notice. We just want to let the the people watching know that this event has been sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Departments of History, the Department of Peace, War and Defense, and the Department of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies. Many thanks also to our students and colleagues, Sami Siddiqui, Kylie Broderick, and Jamil Aydin for organizing this panel. I also need to give a special thanks to two non-UNC sponsors, Jadalia and New Books Network. Jadalia has been kind enough to host this webinar and we'll be putting out a video recording of the event later, which I hope to be using in one of my classes. We also wanna thank the New Books Network for agreeing to publish the audio recording of this event as a podcast. So I'll introduce each speaker before they speak. And during the time that they're speaking, you're welcome to um, put questions in the in the chat or in the comments on Facebook because it's being live. This being live streamed in both places. Our first speaker is Osama uh, Maktisi, who is professor of history and the first holder of the Arab American Education Foundation Chair of Arab Studies at Rice University. For the academic year that just passed, Professor Maktisi was a visiting professor at the University of California at Berkeley in the history department. Um, He's also been an invited uh, resident fellow at various institutions and was named by the Carnegie Corporation, a Carnegie scholar in 2009, as part of its effort to promote original scholarship regarding Muslim societies and communities, both in the United States and abroad. Maktisi was awarded the Berlin Prize and was a fellow at the American Academy of Berlin. His latest book is Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. University of California Press, 2019. His previous books include 
faith misplaced the broken promise of U.S.-Arab relations 1820 to 2001, the thrice-awarded artillery of heaven, the American missionaries, and the failed conversion of the Middle East 2008, and the culture of sectarianism, community, history, and violence in 19th century Ottoman Lebanon. He's also co-edited Memory and Violence in the Middle East and North Africa. He's published widely on Ottoman and Arab history, as well as on U.S.-Arab relations and U.S. missionary work in the Middle East. Professor Mokdesi. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Shields, for that introduction. And thank you to UNC and to, um, to Kylie, to Samer, or uh, Jamil, uh, Jadalia, um, the New Book Network, um, and my fellow panelists, and of course, all the, the attendees. Um, and above all, thank you to to the people of Palestine for for what they are going through and for their um, you know for their survival uh, in these extraordinary times. Um, I was asked to speak a little bit about the idea of the relationship between history uh, or historical knowledge and or academic knowledge and journalistic representations. At least that's what I understood my task to be. Um, and I guess I'd like to start with a few words about what is patently obvious to, to any of us, at least to me, um, about the media representation um, of the what is happening in Palestine and in Israel, um, as opposed to the academic discourse. And I think there are problems in both. Let me start with, with the most obvious point, which is that the media, the mainstream media, I'm not talking about social media, I'm not talking about alternative news sites, I'm not talking about progressive forums, I'm talking about the mainstream media, uh, it is overwhelmingly and has been overwhelmingly uh, biased in the sense that the the history not only fo or the 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 the, rep the coverage not only focuses on the immediate events it almost never provides any kind of historical or contextual background to what is actually occurring and unfolding. In other words, we hear about a Palestine, we hear about Palestinians, we hear about Israelis, we hear about rockets, we hear about Hamas, but we almost never get introduced in any way in any significant way to the actual history of the conflict to understand what does it mean and why is there a conflict to begin with? What does it mean to even use the term conflict? What about Palestinian history? What about Palestinian humanity? Why and how do they get effaced? And how and why are certain keywords used in the mainstream media? And why are other keywords not used? So for example, when I began 20 years ago writing or even longer than 20 years ago, writing about this for mainstream audiences in various newspapers, um, editors would routinely, um, and this I'll start now with the, with the journalism, then I'll move to the academic uh, knowledge. But we're just talking about mainstream media. 20 years ago, words, when I would write words like occupied, the occupied West Bank or the occupied East Jerusalem, editors would, would often uh, scribble out the word occupied and put in the word disputed, just as a very sort of minor sort of example, but nevertheless a very significant example of how sort of the, the mainstream was extraordinarily reluctant to recognize what was patently obvious and of course what was in fact the, the legal and political reality of, of the situation of Palestinians, let alone uh, situations like apart, words like apartheid or second-class citizenship and so on and so forth. Today, uh, as all of us can see, not only is the conflict represented in the New York Times and in the Guardian and other major Western newspapers as both sides or routinely as uh, Hamas rockets. And note how many times every single newspaper article I read in the New York Times, for example, mentions 
Hamas rockets. And of course, there are rockets. And not only are the Hamas rockets mentioned, but the number of Hamas rockets are routinely mentioned. But the number of the actual payload of the Israeli sort of bombings, which are vastly more in terms of damage, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, um, capacity to inflict harm, are never mentioned. We never get a sense. So we have the number 600 or 2000 or 300 or whatever it is, and we never have a corresponding number, just as an example of how, again, really subtle ways of representing an extraordinarily unequal conflict between an oppressed group, the Palestinians, under occupation, under siege, uh, and a state, an actual, the most powerful state in the Middle East, a state with a nuclear uh, a force, a state with the largest army by far in the region, and of course, the most powerful air force against the people who are stateless. And that sort of sense of stateless versus state, oppressed versus oppressors, and the entire history of the Nakba of 1948 of, uh, of colonial Zionism, all that is routinely left out. And so you end up with keywords like borders, when in fact, there, aren't, there is no two states to have borders between two states. There, are, there is no Palestinian state. Um, words like, as I said, rockets, words like both sides, and, on, and this consistently occurs um, over and over again. And so the issue, of course, then is, is not only is that the reality that we have to contend with as scholars working on this region, but we also have to contend with it, with it when asked the basic question as to why this is the case. Now, decades ago, Edward Said mentioned, wrote a famous piece called Permission to Narrate, in which he basically made the argument that it is completely unacceptable that Palestinian and Arab voices and perspectives on a conflict in which they are absolutely centrally implicated are routinely not uh, authorized, not allowed to be in the mainstream. Uh, and it's not for lack of eloquent figures. I've mentioned Edward Said. There are many of us here who actually speak routinely in the mainstream. There are extraordinary figures and there have been, and this is the key point, there have been extraordinarily eloquent figures, men and women, Palestinian and Arab and non-Palestinian and non-Arab who have consistently advocated for justice, for humanity, for equality, for uh, secular uh, coexistence, for humanism in the Middle East going back a century. So the issue has never been a lack of voices. The issue has been the ability to get a platform the ability to have credibility, the ability to have a voice that actually is heard. And so, the, for example, take a look at the word apartheid. Now, for the first time, we're in a sort of, it seems to me, a pivotal moment in that we're talking for the first time openly about the situation, which has been, in fact, the reality there for, for, for I'm sure that my fellow panelists, Maureen and Shirin, will talk about this, uh, for a, a long time, apartheid. In other words, two different sets of rules and laws that regulate the, the, the two different populations, Palestinian on the one hand, Israeli on the other, the Israeli Jews are manifestly privileged over the Palestinians. Um, and that word is now coming into circulation because an Israeli human rights organization issued an extremely important report, Betselem, and then Human Rights Report, uh, Human Rights Watch issued its own report about apartheid. And so it seems like the word is finally entered into mainstream. But of course, the question is, why not in 2017 when Rima Khalaf issued her UN wrote her UN report, and that was censored, and that was completely, or at least suppressed, if not censored actively, 
Um, and of course, Palestinians and Arabs uh, in their own experience have been talking about apartheid and apartheid reality for a long, long time. Why was their voice not heard? And so that, of course, gets into this whole question of then we step back into uh, the academic realm, which is, in a sense, even, uh, I would say, just as problematic um, because academic discourse is not free uh, from bias or from taint or from optics or from representation. Um, in our field, in Middle East history, which all of us are, are at least uh, Shireen, uh, Sarah and me, um, and of course, Maureen in his own way are all apart. Um, in, in Middle Eastern history, they, for the longest while, for the first, I would say, 30 years at least, if not 40 years uh, after 1948, uh, the Orientalists, Western Orientalists, dominated the field. And they insisted that they were the true sort of objective interlocutors and, and uh, speakers and interpreters of the history of the Middle East, including the history of the conflict uh, or the, uh, the question of Palestine. And, so, and they said that they were objective as opposed to the Arabs or the, uh, the, the Israelis who were not allegedly as objective as they. So in other words, it was always this idea that they, if you're not involved in the conflict, you're somehow more objective, as if neutrality and objectivity are the same thing. So there was that, there was that question. And, and then the second point was that in the historiography, the academic historiography, there was until fairly recently an overwhelming uh, prejudice against representing the Palestinian side of history as an active, important, crucial aspect, an authoritative aspect of this history. So, for example, they're leaving aside all the romantic narratives of Zionism and, and about a land without a people for a people without a land and the, and the masses of books written by academics about the Arab-Israeli conflict that privileged a Zionist perspective. So leaving those aside for a second, let's just take the term Arab-Israeli conflict. The very idea of framing this as a conflict between two sides, which is how it's always represented, as opposed to, for example, a conquest. We never, at least to my knowledge, we do not talk about Native American history in this, or Native history in this country, indigenous history in this country, as a, as a white Native conflict. We do not talk about civil rights as a Black-white conflict. We talk about it as civil rights. We talk about it as emancipation. We talk about it as slavery. We talk about it as Jim Crow. We talk about apartheid. But we don't talk about things as simply as a conflict to avoid talking about the actual heart of the issue, which is that there is a history that's been completely elided and a people whose rights and whose land has been taken away. Uh, and, and there are many reasons for this. Um, as I said, there is on, on a part of academic scholars for the longest time, there was a Western liberal sympathy, understandable at one level and in for important at, at another level for uh, and a recognition of, of the history of the Holocaust, of, of the of the genocide of European Jews and of, of the extraordinary brutality to which European Jews were subjected. And this sort of, um, this optic or this not optic, but this sort of um, perspective that began with the Holocaust and then framed the conflict as, you know, in, in terms of the Holocaust always reduced, it sort of made the Palestinians inevitably uh, as if they had to compete in suffering with the victims of, of, of the Nazi genocide, which was manifestly unfair. And of course, from a historical perspective, it sort of made no sense because of course, Zionism begins long before, um, long before the Holocaust. And, and more to the point, it's not about, the whole point is not about comparing suffering or victimhood, it's about contextualizing 
each of these moments um, as deeply as possible. And so there was always, but the point is that there was a liberal sympathy for the victims of the Holocaust. And then there was a transposition of the Holocaust with Zionism, as if these are inevitably the same thing. So that was one problem. The second problem, of course, was the socialists, conservatives, evangelicals, all also sympathized with Zionism and did not take Palestinian history and Palestinian humanity seriously uh, in the sense that they simply were not there to be to be uh, uh, grappled with. They weren't there to be debated with. Their historians were not taken seriously. Their scholars were not read. Their production, especially in Arabic, was not read and until today is still overwhelmingly not read or contended with so that when we as scholars talk about the Arab-Israeli conflict, we almost always talk about it as an engagement of English language writings. We almost never engage with the writings that are being produced in Arabic among Arab scholars or among Palestinian scholars um, and journalists and so on and so forth. So there's, there's that structural issue. And then of course, um, you know, there are the issues of, I don't wanna go on too long, but there are issues of, of uh, again, this idea of who gets to speak, who is authorized to speak. We see this in journalism, of course. It's changing now, I think, for the first time. But we also see it among historians in the sense that, you know, Palestinians have known for decades that they were expelled and ethnically cleansed from their homelands in 1948. They know that they are, they have not been allowed back. They know that they are refugees. They know their own human condition. They understand their politics. They have narrated this politics. They have spoken about this politics and this history and their humanity. And that yet it's only when Israeli historians using Israeli archives have sort of explored this question, especially in the 1980s and 1990s, then that became okay to talk about it in a more in an academic fashion to talk about the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And even then it took a long time to get Palestinian voices and histories uh, taken seriously. And in part, this is a structural issue because the archives, the official state archives are Israeli archives. The Palestinians don't have a state, therefore don't have an official state archive. Therefore their sources are never taken as seriously, either as oral histories or as testimonies or as uh, memoirs they're never given the same credibility as official archives. So partly this is a structural problem of, of history writing, and partly there's this, there's this inherent, I think, uh, bias um, against the, 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 the Palestinians in this history. To add to all this, there has been um, a chilling effect within academia for decades. Fear, silence, intimidation, all of us, I think each of us in our own way has, has been exposed to elements of this. Some of our colleagues have lost their jobs. Others have been uh, terrified uh, to speak out because of the fact that there was a sense that when you talk about being Arab or being a Palestinian, it is there was no, you never felt you had a constituency in this country to sort of valorize and validate uh, that experience and that history on its own terms. And so for the longest time, you could think of, uh, of the work of, of scholars pushing back occurred on the margins. So what you saw and what we're seeing now, I think for the first time, is that we're beginning to have a shift where on the margins, and I still think it's on the margins, we're beginning to, there, there's a sense that you can narrate uh, boldly and openly the history of Palestine, and you can talk what's going on today in Palestine, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, inside 
of Palestine inside of 48. For the first time, we hear there's a space that's being opened, and, and I'll leave it to Mohin and to Shirin, maybe they'll talk more about this uh, than me, why it is that there's a space being opened. But it's, I, I think, in large part, it's because of a, a century of work that's been done by all sorts of people, famous and not famous, by women and by men, who have, who, have, who have worked their entire lives, both as academics and as journalists, to try to get across the humanity and the history of the Palestinians. But there's a huge, huge way to go. I still think we're, we're, we're just at the beginnings. I think I, I am, of course, incredibly like all of us, like each of us here, I'm sure, uh, absolutely devastated by what has happened in Palestine uh, to the, the people of Palestine, uh, you know, the... the and of course, not just, I mean, the children, of course, and the women, of course, but the men too, uh, who all these people who are being sort of brutalized in the most extraordinary and open way that we see before us. And, and yet I do think for the first time, despite my sort of horror of what is happening, I think for the first time, there, there is a transformation in the wider American and maybe again in, in other spheres that, that will allow a kind of uh, an approach that actually takes seriously and, and uh, allows for the kind of empathetic history of the Palestinians that we have seen for many other groups. And again, the idea here is not to compare suffering at all, not to say that one group suffers more than the other, but to allow for a humanistic, empathetic, honest uh, investigations into the history and of course the present and the relationship between the past and the present that we see unfolding um, before us. I, I'm for the first time in my life, I feel a tiny bit of optimism in the sense that I feel that that message is going through when I saw uh, representative uh, Rashida Tlaib and, 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 and all the others speak the way they spoke, something is shifting, something is changing. And I think academics are going to play catch up uh, to to the extraordinary sort of efforts um, um, that we see by people on the ground um, in Palestine and everywhere else in the world. So I'll stop there. I think that's that's my 15 minutes. Thank you, Sama. Um, our second middle speaker is Shireen Sekely, Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's the editor of the Arab Studies Journal, co-founder and co-editor of the Jadalia Ezeen, an editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies, a policy, a, a policy member of, of Al-Shabaka, the Palestine, Pal, sorry, the Palestinian Policy Network, and an advisory member of um, our Shafe Online Archive Project. Sekely's Men of Capital, Scarcity and Economy and Mandate Palestine um, from 2016 explores how Palestinian capitalists and British colonial officials used economy to shape territory, nationalism, the home, and the body. She's published in academic journals widely. Um, I'm delighted to have met her today, like Usama. I've been reading her work for a very long time, like actually all three of our, our panelists. Um, they're, they're really remarkable scholars, and um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to Shireen's remarks today. Thank you, Sarah. It's very mutual and I'm humbled to be among um, our speakers today, Osama and Maureen. And I want to especially thank Kylie Broderick, Leila Nashashibi, and um, Sammy, um, whose last name I'm forgetting, forgive me. Um, and, um, I think that 
right now, you know, I, I, I just want to be sort of transparent about the pain that we're all under. Um, and the kind of organizing that's happening around the clock um, by unseen people, um, sort of to continue building on Osama's point that 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 we have gotten here today um, on the backs and the labor of so many people um, who uh, are not necessarily in the public eye. So thank you to all of everyone who is doing this labor. Yesterday, Palestinians once again demonstrated that we are one people, and despite the partitions and separations of Israeli settler colonialism. Yesterday, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, inside the so-called Green Line, and in the diaspora, united in a general strike. It was a historic moment. The last time every corner of historic Palestine was united in a strike was in 1936, when a national boycott launched a grassroots uprising against both British colonialism and European Jewish settlement. In 1936, as, as it was the case yesterday and today, it is the Palestinians on the streets that are forcing their inept political leaders across partitioned sectors to act. It is the people who are leading. Where we begin the story of the ongoing struggle for Palestinian liberation is a political choice. And this is the first concrete tool that I want to offer here. The Palestinian struggle did not begin in 1993 with the Oslo negotiations and ostensible peace process that further partitioned the West Bank into Bantustans, intensified Israeli settlement in Jerusalem um, to now well over a quarter of a million settlers, and facilitated Israeli territorial expansion. It did not begin in 1967 when Israel occupied the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip, when a quarter of a million Palestinians became refugees, when occupied Palestinians were confined to the position of colonized subject, denied basic inalienable rights as they remain today. It did not begin in 1950 when the 150,000 Palestinians who remained in what had become Israel sustained Israeli military rule and became internally dispossessed strangers in their homeland. It did not even begin in 1948 with the troubled twin birth of the Israeli state and the Palestinian refugee condition, when 800,000 Palestinians were forcibly expelled or fled under the force of fire, what we call the Nakba or the catastrophe, what we understand is our ongoing Nakba. It didn't even begin in 1936 with the moment I started with when the Great Revolt became the most sustained anti-colonial struggle of the interwar Arab countries. This revolt was not just a paramilitary affair. It included a network of national and popular committees that built rebel institutions, which included intelligence, taxation, and juridical branches. And the revolt was more than just a call for political independence. It was also a struggle for social justice against class and elite politics. And here I really want to signal what Palestine has to teach us about the ways in which these revolutionary moments are struggles from within and without. And in response, the British colonial government innovated the techniques of deportation, 
torture, targeted assassination, and collective punishment that continue to mark Palestinian experience and would be used, in fact, throughout the colonial world in the 20th and 21st centuries. So where do we begin our story? Well, one place to begin would be in the late 19th century when the first wave of European Jewish immigrants settled in Palestine. Another place to begin, and this is um, where I would advise, um, is to begin with a denial of Palestinian peoplehood and political rights that, not, that was inaugurated with the Balfour Declaration of November 1917. This, de this declaration launched the British commitment to a, quote, national home for the Jewish people with the qualification that this would supposedly not prejudice the, quote, civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities. This short memorandum rendered Jewish an ethno-national category in Palestine. It defined the land and its inhabitants by this category, despite the fact that Jews constituted 5% of the people who lived in Palestine at the turn of the 20th century. The Balfour Declaration decreed the majority of Palestinians who lived on the land nameless, it defined them by what they were not, non-Jewish. This declaration and this erasure would become the juridical infrastructure of British rule until 1948. And here I want to just urge that we begin the story in 1917, if not in the 1890s. To do that is to actually name the struggle for what it is, settler colonialism. Building on the work of journalists and authors, I now want to um, build on what Osama has already said and think together about the possibility of a collaborative, liberatory glossary to bridge the divide between Western media's role in the racist erasure of Palestinian struggles for liberation. And I'm just going to focus on a few terms here, and some of them are overlapping, and Osama's already mentioned some of these. One, clashes. If you say clashes, you are suggesting that this is a random violence, that it is abstract, that it is ephemeral. This is a denial. This is a century-long struggle with settler colonialism. This is the world's 11th most powerful military deploying US funded F-16s, multiple rocket launchers, missile systems mounted for precision strikes, Humvees, M113 carriers against a besieged, aid-dependent, uh, quarantined Gaza. Now we all know what quarantine looks like. Gaza has been quarantined for 14 years. Second term, evictions. The struggle in Sheikh Jarrah today is not a real estate dispute. And for people who think that it's better to say evictions, I'm sorry, you are also complicit in erasure if you say evictions. This is not evictions. This is the forced removal of people from their homes. It is part and parcel of a broader and now century-long struggle to remain on the land in the face of persistent ethnic cleansing. This does not begin in 2021. It has broader roots that are ongoing. It's happening inside uh, Israel in, in, the, in the Negev, in Araqib, in, uh, uh, throughout even in Nazareth with um, uh, upper, upper Nazareth, right? And 
you know, this also links to the use of the of, of mixed cities inside when we talk about cities like Lid or or uh, or Lod, right? Which is itself the place that in July of 1948, along with Ramla, was a primary site of the forcible expulsion of 60,000 Palestinian men, women, and children from the cities that they had inhabited and that their descendants had inhabited for hundreds of years. You cannot understand this struggle if you use these kinds of terms. Term number three, Israeli Arabs. The people inside the Green Line are not Israeli Arabs. They are Palestinians. When you use the language of Israeli Arabs, you take part in the racialized erasure of our peoplehood. These people are subject to second-class truncated citizenship in their own land. They live in a state that is juridically defined as Jewish, that renders them by that very definition unequal and strangers in their own land. So all of this language that, and Lena Tatur has spoken about this really beautifully, of civil war or sectarian strife or, uh, you know, uh, mixed cities, right, really erases the ongoing struggle that people are waging inside the state of Israel against their own dispossession from land and politics. Term number four, Hamas targets. This is typically how U.S. media in particular labels the homes, schools, businesses, structures, and organizations that Israeli artillery destroys. As we learn from journalist Dina Takruri, a CNN international memor memorandum, and she's tweeted about this, directs journalists to use the language of, quote, Hamas-run Gaza Ministry of Health, end of quote to both dehumanize, uh, uh, not just anybody who is uh, uh, aligned with Hamas, but all of the Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. So let me give you an alternative list. And I think Osama's point about um, what is available to us in English versus what is available to us in Arabic is really crucial here. And in the Arabic press, you actually get a more, let's say, a qualified depiction of what is actually being destroyed in Gaza right now. Let me give you that list of what has the Israeli war machine actually targeted. Homes, playgrounds, 53 schools, a sponge factory, the only COVID testing laboratory in the Gaza Strip, Gaza's largest bookstore, the offices of the Palestinian Children's Fund, right? These are all come under the, again, racialized erasure of a category like Hamas targets. Term number five, human shields. This terminology renders Palestinians uh, as all killable, right? In this language, all Palestinians are guilty simply for existing. This has a parallel in the use of the language of terrorism. As Alex McDonald has pointed out, for most of the world, a terrorist is someone who engages in acts of indiscriminate violence against civilians, conflating, as has done the Israeli press and the U.S. press, Palestinians or Palestinian organizers protesting, hurling rocks 
at Israeli security forces as terrorists erases the Palestinian struggle and renders people calling for basic rights irrational and bloodthirsty. I want to also now talk about another thing that Osama uh, brought up, which is this uh, language of women and children, right? And Maya McDashi pointed this out in 2014 and 2014 in the latest in the, the last Israeli all-out assault on Gaza. Then she warned us about this trope of women and children um, coined by Cynthia Enloe in the context of Vietnam that circulates to delineate ostensible innocence in Gaza and Palestine. This use of women and children accomplishes many discursive feats. I'm going to highlight, as Maya does, um, two of them here. One the massifying of women and children into an undistinguishable group brought together by the sameness of gender and sex and the reproduction of the male Palestinian body and the male Arab body more generally as always already dangerous. Thus, here what we have also is that this, the, the status of male Palestinians, right, which means anybody over the age of 15 is always already suspect, is always already killable. So when we use this language of women and children, we have to be very careful about which kinds of humans we are uplifting as innocents and who are we excluding from that uh, category. The last term I'll talk about is the term um, again, that Osama brought up of both sides, right? These two words flatten Israelis and Palestinians into homogenous and mutually exclusive categories. And I get so tired of this, right? As if within Israel, there aren't racialized hierarchies of Ashkenazim, Mizrahim, Arab, internal Arab Jewish hierarchies, Ethiopian um, Israelis, right? Um, other black uh, uh, Jewish Israelis. There, there are more than two sides. There are internal divisions and differences of class, render, race, gender, sexuality, and ability among Israelis, among Palestinians. But what is most dangerous about this language of both sides that we still have to face is that it equates a people with a state. We are talking about a power differential between a state and a people between a colonized people and a colonial state, right? And here, this is again to build on Osama, we are talking about a legal structure of apartheid where the access that you have to rights is dependent and contingent upon how the state defines you, okay? And I want to just make a plea that when you hear this language, you reject it. This is a frontline battle, right? And, and it is so important for each of us to reject this, this kind of language at every turn that we see it. Palestinians are not objects of sympathy. We do not need to prove our eligibility or our worthiness for independence and liberation. And we should never be put under the strain of evidencing our humanity. And this is a strain I 
and everyone on this panel and everyone who's visible and, is, and isn't is put under daily by university administrators, by uh, people who, want, who's, who are still confused. What should I read? What books are out there, right? Do not put us under the strain of evidencing our humanity, especially when our very existence is a threat. We learn from indigenous scholars, and I have learned this lesson from my compañera Rana Barakat, not to ask who the land belongs to, but to insist that we belong to the land. The people rising up from the far north to the far south of historic Palestine today all belong to the land. We know from Black feminist theory that the eviction from the category of the human is a key technology in subjugating and keeping people captive. We should not succumb to this extraction. This is not a time for compromise. This is not the time to moderate our struggles for or our lives. This is not the time to appeal to international humanity. This is the time to call for a radical recognition of the urgent call for Palestinian liberation. Thank you. Thank you, Shireen. Um, it's, it's odd to be speaking into the void and not having people um, standing up and applauding and the like for, for all of these um, presentations. Our, our final panelist is, is Muin Rabani, who is, uh, uh, has published, commented widely on Palestinian affairs, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and on the contemporary uh, Middle East. He was previously the senior analyst in the Middle East uh, and special advisor on Israel-Palestine with the International Crisis Group and the Head of Political Affairs for the Office of the United Nations Special Envoy for Syria. He's a co-editor of the Jadalia Ezin. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah. And I'd also like to begin by um, thanking the organizers for putting this panel together and for inviting me to participate in it. Um, I think um, my colleagues, Osama and uh, Shirin, have left very little for me to say. So I'll perhaps um, see if there are uh, different points I could, I could make that maybe focus more on um, the journalistic side of the equation than the academic and scholarly one. And um, I'll maybe start by saying that a few years ago when the um, Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal first broke, um, I was interested to know more about what this was all about. And there was a long article, I can't remember if it was in the New York Times or the New Yorker, and I was reading through it. Um, and, you know, every, every paragraph practically where someone would be accusing uh, Weinstein of having done this or having done that, invariably, there would be open parentheses you know, Weinstein denies the allegation, close parentheses. The next paragraph, Weinstein insists the relationship was consensual, close uh, parentheses. And, and it rang a bell with me um, because, you know, when you, when you read about what's happening in, in Palestine and Israeli, quote-unquote, activities against the Palestinians, of course it's the responsibilities responsibility of journalists to also provide um, justifications Israel is giving for its, con for its um, conduct, because in the end, they need to be measured against the evidence. 
But what we see very often is that the Israeli claims and justifications, in fact, stand in for evidence. And I have to say, um, it's, it's really a combination of, of bias and sheer laziness. Um, you know, many of these things are so easy to examine and find out. For example, you routinely see um, uh, headlines that read, Palestinians say um, three killed in Nablus. Well, how much effort does it take to find out whether it's simply Palestinians saying these people were killed or whether there are actually three corpses with bullets in the head or the chest? Um, you know, but when, but when Israelis are killed, it's, it's presented as an objective fact. When Palestinians are killed, it's often presented as a claim um, uh, by the Palestinians. And another example is, I think, um, Osama spoke quite correctly um, about, you know, having Palestinian uh, voices. Um, uh, I think you, you mentioned um, Edward Said's permission uh, to narrate. Well, what I have noticed is that since the establishment of the Palestinian Authority under Oslo, Palestinians have a lot more permission to narrate, but it's almost exclusively when it's a talk about their own internal problems. And it's interesting, you know, next time you read an article, um, look at how often Israelis and Palestinians are cited, and then look at what issues they're cited about. Often it's the Israelis pronouncing on Israeli-Palestinian relations and so on, and then the Palestinians are often led in to criticize their own side, uh, so to speak, rather than to speak directly about Israeli um, activities. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to give maybe a few examples um, because, I mean, if this was the Weinstein story, it would almost be like, you know, he would be giving a story. And then at the end, between parentheses, um, uh, the women have a different point of view. Kind of that. That's really how how bad it has been historically. So, for example, if if we take the issue of Jerusalem, which has been very much um, uh, in the news, um, any Israeli population center east of the Green Line is a colony, or if you want to call it uh, a settlement, and each and every one of them is illegal under international law. But in the American media, there's a convention um, that if it's within the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem, boundaries that I should add are themselves illegal, it's not called a settlement, it's called a neighborhood. If it's beyond Jerusalem, elsewhere in the West Bank, then it becomes a settlement. Um, where does this come from? Why does this persevere? How come it's not uh, challenged and we you know, continue to use the term uh, neighborhood as if it's, you know, just, just a suburb of another um, Israeli city rather than a colony on occupied uh, Palestinian territory. We saw this, I think, also very clearly a few years ago when the Trump administration uh, moved the, um, uh, the U.S. Embassy to Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. 
and what you would often read in reportings is, you know, uh, there's a lot of opposition to this because Palestinians claim it as the cap claim East Jerusalem as the capital of their future state. Well, technically that's true. Um, the Palestinians do claim East Jerusalem as a capital of their future state, but that's not really the issue here. The main issue with moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is that it stands in direct contradiction with U.N. Security Council Resolution 478 of 1980, passed with passive U.S. Um, uh, acquiescence, I might add, that makes it illegal for any state to have diplomatic representation in any part of Jerusalem. And we almost never saw that in, in the reporting and debate about uh, the transfer of the U.S. Embassy to, uh, to Tel Aviv. So take another um, uh, example that's now also very much uh, in the news. You know, this whole concept of this being a conflict between Arabs and Jews. Well, since when is Arabs a religion? Um, since when is uh, Jews a nationality? Um, is a Jew from Iraq an Arab or a Jew? Can't he be both? Can't she be both if she's from uh, Morocco? Um, this, you know, this, this insistence on categorization that just flies in, in the face of centuries of history, but is very convenient because it accommodates the Zionist Israeli narrative about who we are and, and uh, how we relate to each other. Um, I think I just closed, there we go. Um, this other, and, and uh, so you have Arabs versus Jews, and then you have Arab Israelis. Where did that come from? Um, Israel refers to them as Arab Israelis. How many Palestinian citizens of Israel actually refer to themselves as Arab Israelis rather than Palestinians or Palestinian citizens of Israel? Uh, you know, if, if, if a foreign journalist were, were to come uh, to the United States and start describing the American people as North American Europeans, um, I'm sure, you know, many Americans would object, but somehow it's completely normal and natural and accepted to refer to this community with a term that they very rarely use to refer to themselves and many of them openly object to. Um, you know, but speaking of this community, how often in the reporting about it is it reported that, you know, one of the main issues that, that this community has endured was that it was placed under military government from the establishment of the Israeli state in 1948 until 1966, um, that most of its lands were confiscated by the state and that today there is no free market in real estate in the Israeli state because the overwhelming majority of land and property in the Israeli state is reserved for exclusive use um, uh, by the state for, for Jewish citizens. Even more importantly, um, when is the last time you read that under Israeli law, there is no such thing as an Israeli nation? It doesn't exist. Under, Israel, under Israeli law, um, there is the Jewish people, and then there are Arabs, and then there are 
uh, Druze, and then there are Circassians. But the concept of an Israeli nation and an Israeli nationality simply does does not exist under um, uh, under Israeli law, and that speaks, I think, very strongly to the issues of apartheid that uh, Shirin and and Usama were speaking about. I mean, it's it's germane to this whole issue, and it seems to me also not just um, a question of historical interest, but also of contemporary journalistic re uh, relevance. But you very rarely see it referred to or discussed. Um, then, you know, when there are what uh, Shirin referred to as clashes, how come it's always Israelis being killed and Palestinians dying passively? Um, as if, you know, um, we don't, as if there's a reticence about giving their cause of death. Well, yes, he did get a bullet in the head, but he smoked two packs a day. Um, you know, this there is this reticence about calling things by their name, about giving an objective description of, of reality. And when there is an object, objective description of reality, that is often reserved for the Israeli representation of reality, but denied to the Palestinian experience. Um, now, if we look more at, uh, at the political plane, there's often talk about Oslo's failure to produce a two-state settlement. Well, the Oslo Agreement is all of two and a half pages long, and it's available on at least several hundred websites. You know, how many people speaking of this failure have actually read the Oslo Agreement uh, and found that it doesn't make a single reference to, the to a Palestinian state. In fact, the word occupation doesn't appear once in the Oslo Agreement. So is this bias? Is it lazy, compulsive laziness? Is it a combination of the two? Which is worse? Um, you know, and, and I'll just perhaps give a, give a few more um, examples. Uh, Palestinian violence. Yes, of course, Palestinians have have resorted to violence over the over the years in fact over the last um uh century everyone has but palestinians are are presented as somehow being a congenitally violent people who are incapable of responding to any grievance that that they may have without immediately resorting to mass terrorist hysteria but you know these things can be examined. The longest general strike on in on record in history was between April and October 1936 in Palestine uh, by the Palestinian people against the British occupation of their country, which, as Shirin pointed out, was enabling um, its transformation into a Jewish national home uh, to serve the Zionist movement. Well, that should mean something. And, and there are numerous other examples that are often either ignored or, or uh, elided. Um, this whole debate about the, the origins of the Palestinian refugee question and the incredible volumes of ink that have been spilled on this whole debate, you know, um, did they jump or were they pushed? Were they expelled or, or were they fled? 
Well, as a historical matter, I think it's, it's very relevant. But when you're writing about the continuing centrality of the refugee question, wouldn't you think that the more pertinent issue here is that whether they were expelled or they fled, whether it's perhaps that a large number were expelled and the minority fled, or even the other way around, isn't the more relevant factor that once these people found themselves outside the boundaries of the state of Israel as refugees, laws were passed and military measures undertaken to ensure that they would not return. That seems to me to be the central issue here. It's not how they became refugees because the world is full of temporary, uh, temporary refugees from war and conflict. The issue is why is it that almost 75 years later, these people are still refugees. And the simple one-line explanation is that they are prevented from, uh, from returning by Israeli law and Israeli um, action. And this goes directly to another issue that's now very much in the news, which is um, uh, the Gaza Strip. Um, it's often referred to as one of the most densely populated territories on earth. Well, that's factually correct. But why? Um, the answer is because the Gaza Strip had a population of less than 80,000 people in 1947, and in 1949 had a population of 280,000 people. And the reason that in 1955, all those people and their descendants were still there and are still there today is because they are refugees. Uh, over 75% of the population of the Gaza Strip consists of refugees. And so, you know, it's there's a, there's a context, there's a history, and that is not simply of academic and scholarly relevance, but speaks to the issues that journalists claim to be reporting and, and trying to explore. Uh, the last point I would like to make is that both um, Osama and Shirin have spoken about the current moment being a potentially pivotal moment and the hope that they have in, uh, in that respect. I'd, I'd, I'd like to join them, but also add a caveat, which is that what we have seen in recent years, and it's actually become incrementally and sometimes exponentially more intense over the past two decades, is, is this um, systematic campaign, very effective campaign, which extends far beyond academia to delegitimize and in many cases to effectively criminalize advocacy for Palestinian rights. And much of this, of course, takes place under the rubric of combating racism and anti-Semitism, which I very much think is the ultimate insult. Um, and what we've seen, I think, in the past two weeks, and, and you know, let's do give uh, the Israeli government and military at least credit for this, is that there has been an outpouring of rejection of not only their actions, um, 
of, of their narrative and a kind of breaking through the barrier of fear about criticizing Israel and its policies. But we've seen this before. We've been here before. And what tends to happen is, is that, you know, you now have this spontaneous eruption of sympathy and solidarity with the Palestinian people. And that once the dust settles, it comes back with the ferocity and the vengeance um, that, that puts the previous campaign uh, to shame. And I think, I think what happens is that Israel and its apologists realize the extent of opposition to them and their policies and decide that they need to turn the screws even tighter and control any discussion and debate to an even greater extent than they did before. And I have absolutely no doubt that this is going to happen yet again. And I think the real challenge for us is not only what we do now in the heat of the moment, um, but how we organize to ensure that we are in a position to deal with and defeat the backlash that is coming as a matter of absolute certainty. Thank you. Thank you, Mu'in. Thank you so much to all three of you. Um, so far, we have a number of questions. We'd be delighted to have people um, on Facebook as well as on the, uh, the Jadalia uh, live stream um, add questions to the, the Q&A section um, and, and we'll be uh, monitoring those. So I wanted to start uh, with a question that takes on uh, that takes off where we ended. Right now, there's a tremendous amount of sympathy for Palestinians as victims, as victims of, of bombardment, as victims of all of the dreadful things that are currently happening. Um, there's even some political pressure in Washington uh, to change American policy, at least temporarily. But what we know from um, the movements for Black Lives and, and the women's movement and the um, movements for indigenous rights is that um, that changing that the changing the uh, the way we tell this story is essential to preventing this continual cycle of victimhood and sympathy to move beyond um, victimhood to a historical reckoning like other movements have begun. So, so I guess my question is, um, how do we do that, and and what what's the role of of historians and um, and policy people and advocates in actually creating a new kind of, of historical um, narrative. Who is that question to? All three of you. If you guys want to go first, um, you're the practicing professional historians. Shireen, do you want to go first since I spoke first or do you want me to, to go ahead? Um, I'll, I'll go. I mean, I think that I, I want to, um, thank you so much, Sarah, and thank you for everyone. Um, I think we need to move beyond this idea of sympathy as a first step, like sympathy for the Palestinians, sympathy for what is happening right now. I take your point, I take Maureen's point that right now we are in a moment of immense spectacular violence. And when that spectacular violence eases, um, um, we will continue to be in the struggle. And I also really want to, along with um, both Maureen and Osama, talk about the heightened 
uh, attempts to shut down any narration of Palestinian politics and history through the uh, racialized uh, definition of anti-Semitism from the International Holocaust uh, Remembrance, uh, Remembrance Association that is sweeping our universities and sweeping multiple organizations to shut our voice down. We know that anti-Semitism is central to our struggle. We, fighting anti-Semitism is central to our struggle, just as fighting all forms of racism, including anti-Blackness, including Islamophobia, including uh, anti-immigrant uh, xenophobia, anti-Latinx, uh, anti-Indigenous in this country and beyond. Um, and so I think Again, I would invite us all to move beyond sort of the uh, uh, immediate moment and to move beyond this, our attempts to garner sympathy and, and instead turn to the liberation movements that are going on right now. I mean, I really want to suggest that it's not just that Rashida Tlaib is in Congress, and it's not just that Beit Salem just came out with this apartheid report and that Human Rights Watch did too. We made that possible. Palestinian organizers and all of the organizers in these movements have pushed. It's a war of maneuver. It's a long one. It, it's grinding, but it, but we have a role to play in that, right? And so I think what we do is continue this struggle by focusing on popular movements, not through states, right? So here I think that the movement for Black Lives, Standing Rock, the struggle for in Monokea, all of these various struggles have informed and opened up the space for us to speak in new ways and make demands in new ways that continue to build on the struggle historically. I also really want to insist here about the broader um, um, struggle for liberation in places like Egypt, in places like Syria, in places like Lebanon, Iraq, Yemen, the Arabian Peninsula. Um, we really have to, again, make a distinction between the state, the states and governments of these places and their people. And we have to understand that the liberate, that all of our liberation is inextricably connected and dependent. And I think we switch our attention from this insistence on, you know, people recognizing us, you know, we're not going to win that. We have to force that, and we force that through solidarity and intersectional alliance, and asking ourselves also hard questions. Right? And you know, and I think uh, working within um, our movements to to um, really work on patriarchy and sexism and racism within our movements, not just external to them. And I think that's the work that will really make uh, a, a, a different kind of turn. And I want to really also um, um, recognize here the work of so many amazing, uh, talented, intelligent, young Palestinians who are behind the scenes and doing this work in the Palestinian Feminist Collective, in the Palestine as Practice, a Praxis petition that has gone around. And the, this generation is not waiting around for sympathy. They're waiting and, and taking part in liberation struggles that are intersectional. 
I mean, I'd like to echo what Shireen said. I agree with what Shireen just said. Uh, and also at, to speak uh, directly to the question that Sarah posed in terms of historical practice in our profession. Obviously, as scholars, as, as scholars, I mean, we have a, we do, I mean, practice constantly integrity and scholarship that goes without saying. But part of what motivates our sort of passion and our insistence on narrating this question is not is not simply taking advantage of a momentary or fleeting sympathy. It's also a bedrock uh, um, awareness of a history that has been denied. And part of being a historian and part of being a scholar and part of being a scholar, uh, not just a scholar vis-a-vis -vis Palestine, it could be vis-a-vis -vis any group in the world is trying to narrate and excavate the history um, that we know has been misrepresented, that we know has never had a an honest reckoning. And so the difficulty, of course, is it's one thing to, to sort of understand that we're in a moment, a pivotal moment, and Maureen is absolutely right. There is going to be a backlash, but of course there has been a backlash all along. And sort of, but the point of is that we've never had a moment where you've had the kinds of Congress women speaking so explicitly and unapologetically and so directly to a human experience that is, almost impossible to refute. It is very difficult to actually say, I want to be for an apartheid state, or I want to be for killing, or I want to be for the oppression of another people. It is very difficult to make that argument. And so the question for us as scholars is to say, okay, that's happening. But our job also is to continue to excavate, to explain to our students, not to sort of brainwash them, obviously, but to tell them, here's the history. And the history is so abundantly clear. It doesn't take very much. Just study the history, study it objectively, study it honestly, study it with all the caveats and all the nuances that it needs to have. And just, but, but fundamentally the base, the bottom line of all this has to be, there is a core humanity and an equal humanity, an equal humanity that undergirds this history. Once we recognize that, then we, we, we move on. So uh, I, I think that there's no question that the more difficult thing is trying to sort of get us beyond the immediate sort of, I mean, as scholars, beyond the immediate focus, uh, which is understandable and necessary, but then also to say, okay, but how did we get to this position to begin with? And, and what about ultimately the question of what does it mean to have a Jewish state in a land which is and has been and always has been multi-religious? What does it mean to call for this? What does this mantra of a Jewish and uh, democratic state actually mean? How do you reconcile that with basic fundamental equality and rights for Palestinian citizens and for Palestinians who are under Israeli occupation right now? These are the more difficult questions. But the point is, the only way we can do this is through honest um, exploration. And I know speaking for myself, but I'm sure Shireen as a historian feels, uh, I mean, she'll speak for herself, but we feel that I'm sure the same, that we, we have nothing to hide and we have nothing to fear. And that's the whole point. We have not been sort of, denying history or denying anyone's right to speak. It's the opposite. We want an honest exploration because we, we have a very powerful sense of the importance of history and historical narrative in explaining what is going on today. Yeah, I'd um, maybe just um, add to the last point that uh, Osama uh, made. I think it's, it's very much also about sources. Um, you know, if, if you were reading a book about the Jewish rabbinate in, in early Ottoman Tiberias, and it was all Muslim sources, you'd kind of think twice 
about the value of, of the book you're reading, but it's, you know, um, considered perfectly reasonable and legitimate uh, to have libraries full of books about this territory, which have virtually no uh, reference to Arabic or Palestinian sources. And you see this, I think, to an even greater degree in much of uh, modern and contemporary journalism. I mean, you think it's bad now, uh, go back 10 or 20 years. There's actually been a, been a sea change uh, for the better, but it's a very, very large ocean. Um, and, and so uh, the change uh, is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you from the Netherlands. Here, they don't talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They talk about the conflict in Israel. So, um, uh, you know, it's very, next time uh, you read uh, a newspaper article where there are no Palestinians uh, quoted about their own reality or rather the reality that's being inflicted upon them, uh, you know, put a value on that, put a value judgment on that. Thank you. I have a question here for Osama. Um, he said, so lucid and helpful. I think I heard you once say that you didn't think BDS was an effective strategy to end the occupation. Has your thinking shifted on this issue? Um, I don't know what, uh, I, I'm not sure which, what conversation um, is being referred to, because I don't think I said that. I think I must have said I don't think BDS can be the only strategy of liberation. I think there are, this is the fundamental point. There is a situation in Palestine uh, where you have uh, a massive, I mean, there, there is a very powerful state. There are Israeli Jewish people um, and these people have to be part ultimately and will be part ultimately of uh, any kind of real solution if we genuinely believe in secular democracy and freedom and equality. So BDS is one strategy because it's, it's basically a strategy which tries to, to put pressure like the apartheid movement, like many other movements in history that try to sort of leverage a moral power to try to reverse or try to sort of in some way balance the extraordinary imbalance of military and economic and political power that we, of course, see what happening right now. But it can't be the only uh, BDS. We shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking or, or at least I shouldn't say delude, maybe that's too strong, but we shouldn't sort of reduce the, entire, the entirety of Palestinian resistance to simply BDS. There has to be a respect for what people inside of Palestine say, what people in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, in Gaza also say. And so rather than just make it sort of a, um, um, an academic debate. So I really think that there, there's got to be, like in every liberation struggle, there are multiple, multiple uh, strategies of resistance and tactics of resistance, but there has to be one overarching um, um, goal, which is liberation and, and equality for all people. Sarah, can I also just come in sure. for a second? Um, so I just, I just want to, um, on, on boycott, divestment, sanctions, um, I think exactly as Osama is saying, BDS is a vehicle. BDS is not the movement. BDS is part of, again, a century-long struggle to remain on the land. And the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, again, I really want to insist about making visible the role of Palestinian organizers, Palestinian rebels, the name, the nameless, not the, not the famous people, right, who 
actually put out the call for boycott divestment sanctions. That movement came out of a call from Palestinian civil society organizations that were naming the condition as it exists on the ground as apartheid and that were calling on all people of conscience to stand up against apartheid with the tools that people used to stand up against apartheid in South Africa. These are the tools. And frankly, boycott divestment sanctions has been one of the primary targets of this entire campaign to render us illegitimate, to render us subhuman, to, uh, to, to instill fear that anytime we speak, we will be accused with anti-Semitism. And I really wanna recognize again, the work of Palestine Legal on this and the way that they have recorded in, in, the, in the last years, the thousands of people that have been uh, subject to a politics of distraction in courts, the 90% of which have not been successful. So I think that um, boycott divestment sanctions continues to be a vehicle and a tool among many others. Um, and, and I also want to again insist, I'm sorry, that this is actually a moment where we might turn away from our fixation on recognition and insist, insist unapologetically on our right to liberation. And I think BDS is part of that, um, as exactly as um, Osama said. Thank you. I have, uh, we have not very much time and the questions seem to be interconnected. So I'm gonna read two of them. The first one is from the chat. Uh, from the Facebook chat, sorry. Um, I'm curious about the political networks and organizations that are facilitating the Palestinian struggle right now. What political formations should we be keeping an eye on? How do they relate to or contest existing organizations like the PA, Fatah Hamas, the Islamic movement inside 48 and various other movements? Um, the other question from the Q&A here is in the current situation, not only solidarity among the Palestinians is remarkable, but also Arabs, people not states, are visibly expecting their solidarity with Palestinians. Do you think this shows some sort of reemergence of popular solidarity network among Arabs in general? I'll just quickly take that Arab uprise, uh, the Arab uh, solidarity question and leave the institutional party question to my um, colleagues. Um, Again, just like the Palestinians, this is not the first moment of Arab popular solidarity with Palestine. Palestine was central in all of the uprisings that we have seen across the Arab world for the last 10 years. And in fact, Palestine threatens the counter-revolutionary forces in the Arab world, namely Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and the Egyptian Sisi regime. So rather than thinking of this as, oh, suddenly there's this solidarity and we can find hope, this is again the same narrative of people are asleep and suddenly they wake up. I think we have to move beyond this kind of infantilization of popular movements and popular uprising and recognize that people have never been asleep and they have been resisting in multiple forms in, in Arab countries throughout this struggle, you know, and, and, and also in struggle against their own authoritarian regimes. 
I mean, I would, I would of course, absolutely correct. And, and also, uh, and that's why, of course, the jails in the Arab countries are filled uh, precisely with dissidents, with people who have been protesting and fighting for liberation in their countries, but also in solidarity with Palestinians. And this has been, I mean, there is no question. This is one of the great sort of myths and one of the most insidious and pernicious myths that has been propagated, not just, of course, by Orientalists and by the Western media, but also, of course, by the self-serving sort of Arab regimes that have gone down this very dark path of abandoning sort of the most basic and fundamental aspects of liberation and humanity in the Arab world, which is to say this idea that Arabs have given up on Palestine is a myth. I mean, it's it's been a myth. And it's the the the, the, the remarkable thing is how, despite all the extraordinary repression that there is across the Arab region, most of which, of course, are funded by the United States or supported by the United States, these regimes, despite the massive, massive repression and the extraordinary um, um, domination of the Gulf states of Arab media, the remarkable thing is how much organic, spontaneous, organized and, and, and spontaneous solidarity there is and always has been with the Palestinians, because everybody understands. And this is one of the things that, that, that I think defines being, in a sense, Arab. But it's not just Arabs. I think it's, it's Muslims. It's also people around the world. It's any people of conscience, I think. Who, they understand right and wrong. And they understand fundamentally that this is a most fundamental and basic question that doesn't even require the kinds of hoops that we have to go to in this country to explain the Palestinian question to people who fundamentally begin with the premise that we are not equal, we are not human, our history does not count. For most people in the Arab world, you don't need to explain. You understand what Palestine means and what it is. And that has not changed. What's changed is, is a war. I mean, Moraine can speak to this, I'm sure, as well. A, there's been a consistent campaign that, that came to an apex, in a sense, with the Trump administration. But it's not just the Trump administration. It's the Clinton administrations. It's the Obama administration. It's every U.S. administration to basically who understood, have understood all along since 1947-48, since the very first U.N. debates. They understood that the vast majority of the Arab and Muslim world are as empathize and, and are in solidarity with the Palestinians because it's such an obvious question of colonialism, and, and, and subjugation. And so, so rather than understand that and work with that, what the US has done policy-wise over the past several decades is to sort of smash, ignore the Arab world, ignore the solidarity, and basically force uh, the Arabs to come to peace, not with an Israel that's willing to make peace on terms of equality, but to actually abandon the Palestinians and submit to uh, a US-backed hegemony in the region. And so I think what you see now is, I mean, the Intifada was the first Arab Spring. People forget that they always start the Arab Spring in 2010, but the, the, the first Intifada, the second, I mean, uh, and in Iraq, people have been struggling for freedom in this part of the world and they understand what struggle and liberation is. I, I, I completely agree. There's been a concerted uh, campaign which reached, a, reached its apex during um, the Trump years to isolate the Palestinians and to delink them um, from, from their natural Arab environment. But I would also add that there's a second dynamic that's been at work here, which is, I guess I would call it to de-Arabize the Arab world itself. Um, you may remember, for example, that the uh, constitution that the Americans first wrote for occupied Iraq 
um, left out Iraq's identity as an Arab state. Um, and, and, you know, the um, Arabness has always been, or at least in modern times, um, has been seen as a threat by the West and something to be shattered and fragmented. Uh, the other interesting point here is, is that people throughout the Arab world have suffered enormously during the past decade, uh, significantly more, I would say, than in decades past in Yemen, uh, in Syria, in, in, in Iraq, in Libya, and elsewhere. And what I think is telling is that throughout this decade, the one issue that seems to resonate with Arabs everywhere, regardless of their own circumstances, is the Palestinian cause. Uh, mass demonstrations in Yemen of all places this past week in support of the Palestinians. And I think this is partially because Palestine remains the Arab question par excellence. And secondly, also because of the enormous um, uh, symbolism that Jerusalem has uh, for all Arabs. In terms of the first question, I think if you look at Gaza, it's pretty straightforward. Um, there, it's, it's the um, uh, dominant political factions, primarily Hamas and uh, Islamic Jihad, and to a lesser extent, some of these uh, smaller ones who, who are the main organizational vehicles there. Um, within the green line, uh, there, there are a number of institutions or, uh, and, and political parties that represent the Palestinians there, but to what extent they are the ones who are actually organizing and leading that community is, is not clear to me. In the West Bank, it's my sense that it has a lot in common with um, the uprisings that we saw in the Arab world in 2010, 2011, which is to say at this stage, fairly leaderless, um, led very much um, by uh, the spontaneous activism of, of generally younger people. And I think the key unanswered question in the West Bank is whether this will be an opportunity for the Fatah movement, uh, which was dominant in the West Bank previously, to rejuvenate itself and rejuvenate itself as, as, as a broad church for Palestinians of various uh, persuasions, or whether what we're seeing now will prove to be the final nail in its coffin. Thank you so much to all three of you. Um, more questions are coming, and um, we, we're out of time. So um, unless any of the three of you has last words that you didn't get a chance to say, I'll just say thank you very much to all of you and to the people who did the organizing. Uh, you may not have noticed that on, on Facebook, on the Facebook stream, there's been a, a conversation that started about what people should be reading. And I want to point out that one of the people supporting this, jadalia.com, has um, lists of readings. There are also other panels. It's not difficult to find places um, to get the information that you need to 
do your teaching or to do your reporting. Um, you've got a, a list of alternative words to use. Um, and stay once... away from Thomas Friedman. <laughs> Thank you very much to all of you. I'm very grateful. I've learned a whole lot. And um, Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye, so everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you.